One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 165 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. This week we're talking about scary cars, the, the cars that have really frightened us, road and racing cars. There's some pretty hair-raising stuff in there. But before we get started... Andrew, we've had some good news this week, haven't we? And actually, you're on holiday, you're on the beach somewhere, so I've had to drag you off your sun lounger to come yes. and talk to the podcast audience. <laughs> Let's talk about this. I really don't mind. Our wonderful news is that we've uh, won a couple of awards um, at the annual News Press Awards. Um, the Intercooler has been named Automotive Consumer Publication of the Year and um, Automotive Website of the Year. And what's more... One of our writers, David Tuig, um, has been named Automotive Technology Writer of the Year um, for story. That's his award, but they're stories that he wrote for the intercooler. So we're very proud of that fact. So three prizes. Three prizes, yeah. Um, and, and also Yusuf Ashraf, who was our first ever young writer who now works on Evo. He just won the Rising Star Award as well. Um, and I'm personally, you know, I'm delighted about that as about any of them, really, really. But it's, I mean, I guess for us, it's just, you know, to be, I mean, yesterday we got a website of the year and that was fantastic, um, particularly because, you know, the Top Gear was one of the other shortlisted websites. Um, and we would have been very happy with that. I mean, but Consumer Publication, which slightly strange sounding award isn't it because it makes us sound like you know watchdog or something um it's not it's for any automotive publication be it print be it digital whatever its content um and that was i mean that's the huge one because that's everything um and we went in for it because frankly why wouldn't you with with, with, with no particular great hopes um and yeah we got that too um and, you know, love to spend, you know, the next five minutes talking about this, saying how wonderful we are. Actually, it's 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 the extraordinary band of um, of writers 
uh, who we have gathered, so I suppose we should get some credit for that, for persuading them to write for us, who have written all these amazing stories in the most incredible way every single working day um, that has brought us to this place where less than a year after our website, the dash intercooler.com, just to get the plug in, launched, um, we can now we can call ourselves a multi-award winning website now, can't we? I think we probably can. Um, oh, yes, we can and we should. Yeah, it, it just it, more than anything else. I think it just shows that, you know, fortune does sometimes favor the brave. And we took a, a decision to do something completely different. You know, to have a website without any advertisements on it um, because we wanted to write what we wanted to write about, not what our advertisers wanted us to write about. Um, and to concentrate only on the finest quality writing from the finest quality writers we could find um, and really nothing else. And that, you know, it's certainly been recognised and it's been recognised by, by news press. And yeah, we're chuffed to bits, aren't we? Which after bits, yeah. And um, you're right, it's down really to our writers who continue to produce world-class stuff for us week in, week out. Um, I must rattle off a few thank yous, of course, to the news press judges who said some very, very kind things about the intercooler. Um, and to um, our subscribers, of course, to our subscribers, because without you guys... There is no TI. We can't do what we do. So thank you to everyone who does subscribe and who um, believes in what we're doing with the Intercooler. Also, thank you to our brilliant partners who work with us. And again, the Intercooler doesn't exist without our brilliant partners. So thank you to them for making this possible. Finally, to a company called Treacle Media. Um, They are our design agency. They designed and built our website and they continue to be brilliant to work with. So... To everybody who's contributed to TI, um, just a huge thank you. And winning these prizes, I mean, I'm I'm blown away. I'm really blown away. Um, and I suppose it encourages us, doesn't it? It gives us some confidence that we're onto something. Yeah. And to two people you won't have heard of, Matt Reed and Megan McDonald, who help us in the most important ways, getting our message out there. Uh, and to someone who we'll refer to as RS Driver, um, who has been our constant support since the very first day we decided to actually launch the app, not just the website. Um, you know, they, you know, we'll, but we're going to get all the credit for this, and I'm, and I'm happy to take it, believe me, but um, we don't deserve it all. We deserve a very small part of it, and a lot of it goes to our writers, but a lot of it also goes to these other people who, people, you know, whose name won't be seen regularly um, on or about the site. So, yeah, thank you all. Um, but we are only just getting started. You know, in, in terms of our plans, um, we're barely out of the starting blocks. So, yeah, much, much more to come. We must also mention Father's Day, Andrew, because that is coming around very, very fast. Um, just a few days, actually. And it's good timing for us, isn't it? Because we can now persuade all of you to buy for your car-loving dad um, a, a gift subscription to a multi-award winning online magazine. Why wouldn't you? I mean, what more excuse could you possibly want? So head to head to the-intercooler.com and find the gifts page and you can choose between 6, 12 and 24 month gift subscriptions starting at just $35.99. Um, we'll send you a digital gift voucher immediately for you to share with your old man um, come Father's Day uh, and we think he'll like it. And if you choose a 12 or 24 month subscription and he likes it, 
Just think, you'll never have to worry about what to give your dad Father's Day ever again. Just renew the subscription. Simple. Couldn't be better, could it? Couldn't be better. So there we go. Um, yeah, big week for us. Um, but let's get on with this episode of the podcast. And we are talking about scary cars. And Andrew gets us underway by describing the frightening Jaguar XJR 15. Andrew, you have recently driven and written about for TI a very special car that you're going to describe to us in a moment. Yeah. Um, but it made me wonder... We had a little bit of text message to and fro while you were actually driving the car. Yes. Um, and it sounded like a, let's say, an intimidating beast. Um, would you, though, actually describe it as scary? Yes, 100%. <laughs> okay. I was scared. <laughs> oh, my I God. Was scared. I wasn't scared for myself um, because I was cocooned inside a carbon fibre tub. But I was mm. scared about damaging it. Um, uh, put it this way, I was never happier in my experience of that car than when I just handed it back yeah. to its owner in one piece. Which, that's the telltale, isn't it? You know you've yeah. been scared when you're actually quite pleased to get out of it. It's I in was one glad. piece and you're walking away. I was delighted to get out of it. Yeah, I've, I've had a few of those experiences, um, yeah. which we'll come on to. But we, we should start with the Jaguar XJR15. Yes, yes. This was... I think most people think that the McLaren F1 was the first um, genuinely carbon fibre, i.e. a car with a carbon fibre structure, um, road legal car. It wasn't. Um, the Jaguar XJR15 was. Um, came out in... Uh, they were building in 1990. I think probably the first road cars got on the road in 1991. But nevertheless, it was a car. It was a road legal car, and it was you know, a fully carbon fibre tub. It was that way because it was the tub from the XJR9 sports car, the car that had won Le Mans in 1988. And it came about um, because Jaguar were doing the XJ220 at the time, and Tom Walkinshaw wanted to show, well, you can do that, but I can do this. And guess what? You know, you might have an aluminium tub, we're going to have a carbon tub, you're going to have mm. a V6 twin-turbo engine, mine's going to have a race-derived 6-litre V12 in it, and... You know, um, and so it started life. It was going to be called the TWR R9R, but TWR and Jaguar had formed a company together called Jaguar Sport um, to go racing and do various other things. And in the end, it came under the Jaguar Sport um, sort of umbrella, and the R9R became the XJR15. And actually, Tom Walkershaw ended up um, not only building and developing the XJR15, but um, the XJ222. So anyway, <clears throat> that's the history of the car. They made 53. Uh, I'm sure people, many people remember this um, car. Jeremy Clarkson called it the worst handling car of all time, which I was prepared to take with a bit of salt and just sort of think, <laughs> well, that's just Jeremy being Jeremy, until I drove it. Yeah, then you drove one, yeah. And then I drove one. Um, of those 53 cars, 18 were racing cars. So there were 16 race cars and two spares. Uh, and there was a three-round, one-make championship. Uh, and the rounds were at uh, Monaco, Silverstone, I think, and the final, which was the winner-takes-all. Million-dollar prize for the car, for the driver who wins that, fi- that, that final round um, was at Spa. And a bloke called Armin Harner won that and got himself, um, yeah, quite a, good day, quite a good day's earnings. Mm. Um, but anyway, so basically the car was an XJR9 tub um, with a detuned engine, so a six-litre rather than a six. They raced 
at Le Mans with seven litre engines. This was a six litre engine, but still with 450 horsepower in road trim. The race car engines, there was never a declared output for the race car engines, but they had different cams and ignition timing and valve timing and various other things. So they're definitely more powerful. Um, and they had, you know, XGR9 um, suspension. What they didn't have was XJR9 bodywork. And the reason that's important is because an XJR9, like all Group C cars of that era, was designed as a full ground effect car. So its body was an inverted wing. It had massive venturi underneath it, developed tons, literally tons of downforce. XJR15 developed no downforce whatsoever. Um, And it had, you know, because it was designed to be a road car as well as a race car, it had um, quite a lot of ground clearance. And the result of this um, was a car. So um, Tiff involved, Tiff raced one of these things. Um, And so I rang him up when I'd just driven this thing. Uh, And he just started giggling down the telephone. (laughs) Um, And I asked him to describe it to me. And he said it was brutally awful. He said it was bad, not even in a funny kind of way bad. And he said that... um, that engine was moved with, without any downforce. That engine would move the car around so much that you would completely destroy your slicks in three in three laps, um, and then essentially your race was over. Um, and yeah, what can I say? So, so, so this car, this the car I drove was Max Aitken's car, um, and he raced in the series. And it was the first. It was chassis one. It was the first of the racing XJR 15s. It's also, since by its current owner, been made road legal. I'm not quite sure how that's happened because it is, the, the, it is purely a racing car. Um, and so it, this particular car has a claim to being the world's first road legal carbon fibre car. Anyway, hmm. um, because it's road legal, and I have to say I didn't see this ball coming, and in retrospect, perhaps I should have done, it turned up on street tyres. Yeah. Crikey. Yeah? So this is a racing car with racing suspension and everything else wearing, I mean, they were new. Well, they weren't new. They were quite old, but they hadn't been used before. Um, so um, I think they were P0s. Um, and yeah, uh-huh. I mean, so I got in it and I sort of tootled off. And, and for a bit, I just kind of thought, I'm not quite sure what all the fuss was about. I was going through the usual sort of things that you do, just sort of getting a feel for the car, not driving it particularly fast. Um, lovely sequential, not sequential, lovely six-speed Hewland dog box. Obviously, the road cars had a five-speed synchro mesh box, which was related to, but not identical to that used in the XJ220. But the race cars all had this Hewland six-speed box, which was actually developed for the Group C cars, but never used because they, the reason they did it I know I'm digressing here, but nevertheless, they did it because um, the top speeds down the Mulsanne Strait were getting so high, the gear ratios that they had, the five-speed gear ratios, weren't covering it. And so they developed this new six-speed box um, so they could have much closer ratios uh, and still have something which would, you know, suit, you know, the endless Mulsanne Strait. But then they put chicanes on the Mulsanne Strait in Mm. 1990. So it was never needed. So this gearbox existed and it ended up in the XJL15. And it's beautiful. And so the engine was beautiful. The engine is superb. I mean, so easy to drive. Torque, absolutely. Torque from 2000, like a road car engine, but it sounds like heaven on wheels. Um, Beautiful throttle response. Lovely, benign. 
really powerful. I mean, the car weighs a ton, and let, I think the race cars probably have about 484, 90 horsepower. So, you know, proper, proper performance. Um, you know, you think of a car, you know, that weighs about a ton, and think about, you know, thick end of 500 horsepower. Uh, and it lot. gives you an idea of just how rapid it is. But all that was just very straightforward. The brakes were really good. Um, and I was just sort of tootling around Donington um, on a quite, quite a quiet, unsilenced test day, thinking, well, I don't know what all, all the fuss is about. And, and as you do, I just started upping uh, the effort level a little bit. Um, and then suddenly I just became aware of this, this motion behind me as the car... Basically, the car would start turning into a corner and then keep turning. Mm. And you were aware that the turning was all coming from behind you. Uh, as the quite soft suspension and this enormous lump of V12 metal behind you had kind of set off in that direction and found it was quite enjoying itself and wanted to keep going. And so you were having... So it's basically, it, was, it had this sort of roll-induced oversteer going into corners, which is, as, as, as you all know as well as I, is basically the most unsettling mm. handling condition there is. Everyone can cope with you know, power on oversteer away from the apex. That's fun. But when you get this sort of sickening lurch... Um, and the car, you know, feels like it half wants to spin as you're turning into the corner. That's a whole world of pain. Um, and I sort of you know, noted that and thought, okay, fine. You know, so what I'll do is I'll just drive it like, you know, an old 911. I'll be very conservative with my entry speed and then I'll get on the power um, and, you know, nice and early, use the traction because it is quite soft and it's got a lot of weight of the rear wheels and the traction was quite good and everything will be fine. Um but then uh, I did a few more laps like that. I still wasn't very settled. And then there was one moment I came out a red gate. And uh, to those who don't know the way that Donington works, you come out a red gate, which is sort of like a never-ending right-hander. And you're going really, really fast. You're probably in the jag. You're probably in fifth. And then you, from going hard right, you have to go immediately left down the crane curves at high speed. And that transition, oh, my goodness. Mm. It just suddenly, <clears throat> I mean, from the outside, I don't think you would have even seen anything. But if you could have seen, if, if, if I'd been wired up to a heart monitor and you'd yeah. seen what my heart rate did in that moment, um, it was horrible. It was just, it, it, you know, you just gave the impression that this was the car going, okay, just so we understand each other, I want to kill you. <laughs> And, and if you carry, and if you carry on driving, driving me like this, I'm going to find a way of doing it. And if I have yeah. to take myself out in the process, that's fine. And it was, it was just utterly disconcerting. And because this car is worth, <clears throat> I don't know, but it's, it's certainly in the millions. Um, and it's in beautiful condition. Um, and it's such an important historical car. And its owner was in the pits. You know, I wasn't going to start, you know, prodding that a bit no. further and just seeing what would happen next if I kind of ignored you know I'm not bright but I'm not completely moronic <laughs> and you, know, you get a message like that and you know and, and that says to me one thing you know which is well two things well, either slow down or come in and I just thought I'll come in because you know I've already driven it slowly so it was yeah it was properly scary um, and it's you know it spoiled my the time I had in the car and I, I, I was beginning to think, oh, well, what a shame. But actually, now I think about it, I don't think it actually matters at all because who's going to drive an XJR15 like that anymore? He said, the owner said it was the first time it had been driven in anger for 20 years. Oh, wow. 
Um, and right. I think it's one of those cars that actually what it does isn't very important. It's what it is, where it's mm. come from. It's rarity, it's beauty with that stunning Peter Stevens body on it, the sound yeah. of its engine. Uh, and I understand why he's made it a road car, because frankly, it would be much nicer, although quite limited and quite noisy in that <laughs> environment, um, than trying to drive it fast around the track, which it particularly on road... And I, I mentioned this to Tiff, to Tiff, that it was on street tyres, and he said, well, presumably that just made all its problems 10 times worse. And I don't know how bad it would have been if I'd been on, on a set of slicks. Mm. I imagine it would have been a lot better, um, but even then, I don't imagine it would ever have been great. In fact, I'm sure it wouldn't. So, yeah, properly, properly scary car. God, it sounds it. It sounds it. And, and so it's not like in the quick stuff, the downforce comes in and it settles down. And it you... doesn't have any. It doesn't, we are. It, doesn't have, it doesn't have any downforce. That's the point. Yeah. It's got these little diffusers at the back, but the car's so far off the deck, it'll never get to use them. And yeah. it's got one of those you know, rear wings, which is so flat, you can eat your dinner off it. It doesn't have any downforce. No, it's not mm. like a Jaguar. Um, and actually, the Jaguars, you know, because um, as you know, I've been, I've been very lucky and, and I've driven um, a couple of Gripsy Jaguars. They get better the faster you go. Yeah. Yeah. They just become more and more nailed down. And you have to be careful with them when you're going slowly, when there isn't a downforce and you've still got this big weight and particularly under braking into, I remember going into the chicane at Thruxton. Um, that was a particular point when you're coming out of a ridiculously fast corner. You've got to lose all the speed and you're going around the corner and you've got to be careful then. But the faster you go, and the quick stuff, I mean, around the back of Thruxton, it was absolutely mm. mighty. Mm. I mean, it was just, you know, turn it in and you know, put your foot down and ride it out and have, have some fun. But no, the extra half 15 was not like that at all. Could not have been more different. So what do you think went wrong with it? Because TWR knew how to build great racing cars. Oh, can, I, can I let my inner cynic answer this question? You can. It didn't have to be good. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Because the road cars were the road cars and they wouldn't get driven on the road that way. And the race cars, it was in a one-make race series. They'd never had to compete mm. against any other car. Mm. Mm. So they didn't have to do a full development program. Tom could sell. I mean, what was so clever about that car is all, if you think about all the other supercars that came out around that time, so I'm talking about the Bugatti and the McLaren and the Chisetta and, um, oh, there were so many of them, the XJ220. Um, you know, commercially, they were all, you know, not good. Mm. You know, they all came out in, in a bull market, but they all got sold in a bear market. Um, and they were all pretty disastrous for the company at the moment. Apart, I'm sure, from the XGR15, because Tom was the only person who said, I'll just base it on something I've already got. Mm. I've got an XGR9 here, and we'll use that tub, and we'll use that suspension, um, and we'll use a derivative of, of that engine. And I'm only going to make 53 of them, and I will charge all the money in the world for me. Charge five, half a million quid for each one, which I think is about 1.2 million today. Um, and he was so clever. And... And it didn't have to go through this massive development process because they were never going to race against anything else. So they didn't have to be good because they only had to be competitive against each other. So I think it, oh. I think it was literally recognising that, frankly, they didn't need to be that good because, yeah. you know... Because they were never going to get shown up, were they? Exactly. Any kind of opposition. That's my theory. I don't know any of that, but that, yeah. that, 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 that's my reading of it. Bloody hell. So I want to talk about... Whether or not this car is actually scary, I don't know, but certainly enormously intimidating, and I was quite happy to give it back in one piece. So that's on. one of our measures, isn't it? This is um, a Pikes Peak car built by Rimac. Um, so it's a purpose-built, all-electric um, Pikes Peak thing. Um, 
and it's built specifically for Pikes Peak, all, all the way down to, you know, it, it, the battery capacity was only enough to get it up the hill, which is yeah. about 13 miles or something. Yeah. Um, the tyres were so gummy, you can, you can sort of almost scoop a bit out of the tread if you want to with your like, fingernail. Like, like, well, I was about to say, like hill climb tyres, unsurprising given that yes. it's a hill climb. But yes, but they're like marmalade, aren't they? Yeah, they're so yeah. soft. Yeah. Um, so purpose-built, and it had outrageous aero on it. Um, and when it was, it was built for Tajima-san. So he's, um, he's the Japanese driver who won Pikes Peak seven times, including six times in a row. Um, so Pikes Peak legend. Um, and he, in 2000, I think it was in 2015, and then they went back the next year. Um, he did a nine minute 32. So at the time, that was a very, very quick run. I think actually Rimac were hoping to go a bit faster. Um, and maybe even win the thing, but um, it's a it's a fearsome fearsome car. And when it was new, and when the batteries were in um, the best of health, it was generating about fifteen hundred horsepower. I think it weighed about a ton. Um, Bloody hell! So the Rimac thing is uh, independent all wheel torque vectoring, so one motor per wheel. So it had four motors. Now the weird thing about this car is that it had chain drives to, oh, wow. to transfer the power from the motors to each of the wheels. And of course, what that means is the racket inside that car is <laughs> unbelievable. So not just that sort of typical whining electric motor sound, but this awful banshee rattling from the four chains that you, honestly, you, you couldn't put up with it for more than a few minutes at a time. Um, when I drove the car at a racetrack in uh, Croatia, um, it, they reckoned it had about 1,200 horsepower. So still a mighty amount of power for the weight of the car. Um, but it's such an awkward thing, even just to sort of sit in. It's got this fighter jet style canopy that comes across. So immediately you're thinking, oh God, this is a bit serious. Um, and then it's this bizarre seating position. Clearly Tajima-san was quite happy with it, but I just couldn't get on with it. So I was too upright, with legs outstretched, so you're almost sat in the position of an L. Um, and then a steering wheel that's a bit too far away and perfectly flat, so it, it, it's uh, well, upright. So it, even just getting comfortable in the thing is really awkward. Um, and of course it is astonishingly fast in a straight line. It just goes and it keeps on pulling and keeps on pulling. The thing about Whenever you're driving an intimidating car, or certainly I want to, just build up to it a little bit. I know that the pro guys will get in, in these cars and just go straight away. But for me, I have to just build up to it and just sort of let my nerves settle, just understand the car a little bit, and then I can start pushing on. The trouble is, in this thing, it will only do 13 or 14 miles. So you do maybe four quick laps of, a, of the track we were on. Then you have to come in and park the thing for... I don't know, a good hour or two to let it yeah. recharge its battery. So you, yeah. you never, ever get to get take your time, get in yeah. a rhythm, build up yeah. to it, get yeah, comfortable yeah. with the car. Um, and so you end up just driving this thing, totally intimidated by it, feeling like you're getting nowhere near, nowhere near the limit of what, actually, laughably so. Um, because in reality, on those super gummy tyres, with all that aero, it would get through corners... Like a mad thing, really, if you had the confidence and you could chase it into a corner, it would just stick and it would go. I never got close to feeling like I was doing that. But even so, 
you could begin to appreciate how quick it would be if you had the time to really get underneath its skin. Um, but the maybe the most amazing thing about it was that it has this all-wheel torque vectoring developed by Rimac, and you could actually just turn it on and off on a switch, turn it on and off. Um, and it was extraordinary to do a lap with it off and then flick it on. And the car seems to shed a third of its weight um, because of how finely they can control individual wheels. They can effectively brake an inside rear corner to pivot the car. They can put the drive to the outside rear corner away from a corner to, to make it feel um, more athletic. And so by doing that, it was actually a really interesting demonstration of what can be done with that kind of super clever all-wheel torque vectoring. But I, I was so pleased when, actually, uh, towards the end of the day, the batteries were depleted for the final time and we were done. And there's also something weirdly intimidating or off-putting about being surrounded by these bright orange, very thick, like snakes, high-voltage cables. And you just feel like you're surrounded by this extremely high-voltage electricity buzzing around. And maybe it's just me, but goodness me, you do kind of look around and think, oh, I'm quite, I think I'm ready to get out of this thing now. Yeah, I drove the Porsche Mission. I'm yeah. not going to make this podcast all about driving racing cars or, or anything like that, but just on that very point, I drove the Porsche, I think you called the Mission R, wasn't it? Which is their mm. sort of electric, 1,000 horsepower electric um, concept for a sort of future one make series. And <laughs> we were there was so it has lights on the outside and which tell people outside the car whether it can be approached or not mm. um, and we had to practice getting out of the car I can't remember what they called it it's like it was called a base jump or something but you had to practice being able to get, get out of the car and jumping clear of the car without ever coming into contact with the ground or coming into contact with the ground of the car at the same time. Like a, yeah, yeah. So you couldn't just get out the car in a normal way. Um, because, you know, the moment you became the sort of the earth between the car and the ground, mm. if there were 4 million volts running through the car at the time, they would run through you and, you know, and you'd be a bit of toast on the tarmac. Yeah. Um, oh. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Should we do some road cars? Yeah, I got a few of those. Um, and 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 and, the, and one point I'd like to make is that you know I thought when I sat down I thought I'd just do a list of um, of race cars that have frightened me and road cars that have frightened me. And actually, the amazing thing is, very very few racing cars have scared me. Mm. Um, and I think that people who I think it's quite convenient to perpetuate this idea that racing cars are scary and frightening and only heroes can handle them and this other. My experience, particularly racing cars that are derived from road cars, you know, things like GT3 cars, GT4 cars, is they're actually, on a track, they're much easier to drive than their road-going counterparts. You have to get your head around the fact you're going that much faster and usually cornering that much faster and braking that much later. But that's just a question of acclimatization. And once you've done that, what you find yourself is in a car that's designed to do the job you're doing. Mm. So it mm. shouldn't be that surprising to discover that it's better at it. Yeah, it wants to uh, do it, doesn't it? It wants to do it. I can remember that the best example of this, um, and this was one of my scary cars, actually, was I went to Hockenheim to drive the... SLS GT3 race car about 10 or 12 years ago when it first came out and they gave me an SLS road car standard SLS road car to learn the track in and I was all over the place in it I was so at sea because I'd never found those cars handled particularly nicely they were very snappy Um, it was very difficult to tell where the axle was when it was going to let go what it was going to do when it did and I thought oh my god if that's what the road car is like this racing car is going to you know I'm going to be in the barrier at turn one couldn't have been more wrong mm, mm. the race car was an absolute peach yeah. and i just drove it and drove it and drove it until eventually they hung out a board saying yeah you better come in because you're, you're going to run out of fuel it was <laughs> and and that's been the case so that's why i've got really i mean you know i've been very lucky to have drive, driven an enormous number of racing cars and sometimes they've scared you for things that got nothing to do with them like their value or you think to yourself oh shit this car has got this most amazing history, and if I damage it in any way, then I'm destroying that history. So that's kind of scary, but that's not really what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about, to me, what we're talking about are road cars, which are just which just don't handle very well. That's usually the problem, isn't it? Mm, yeah, they it just, is, yeah. They, they just don't handle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the one that I, I tend to usually wheel out at times like this is the Ferrari 348, um, which was, you know, came out uh, early 90s, and it was, it was when Ferrari were at their most complacent and arrogant. They thought they were Ferrari. They're resting on their laurels. And they thought as long as it sounded nice and looked pretty, that was fine. Um, and the 348 rate came out. And it was, it was an evil handling car because it would not only did it do horrible things on the limit. It made you think that it wouldn't. Oh. So you could... So it was sneaky t- with it. It was sneaky too. So you could kind of like turn into a corner... And sort of power on. And you feel the back just starting to move slightly. You think, oh, this feels rather nice. I just don't even need a lift off. I'll just correct it a bit and keep going. And then suddenly you're facing the way you came. Um, yeah. And it was... And then the moment that happened, you think, well, shit, well, you know, uh, did I hit something? Was there some oil down or something? And then you go and try it. And it does it again. You think, well, that's mm. it. The, 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 this, the, all your confidence, therefore all your enjoyment in that car is gone. Um, the... The original mid-engine Renault Clio V6, <laughs> yes, exactly yeah. the same. I mean, terrible handling car, um, and that was. I mean, actually, you know, that wasn't quite the same because that didn't even bother trying to lull you. That just, you know, that just spat you <laughs> off the track. Um, so, yeah, and 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 cars like that, they become. You get to the point where you just rather not have driven them because 
once your confidence in them goes, all you're thinking about is just, you know, completing whatever it is you've got to do in it and giving it back and getting away from it and not having to drive one over again. And I drove a 348 about three years ago. So probably 30 years after I'd first driven one at Bedford. Um, and I was just really, really interested to see whether what I'd thought back then uh, in my, what would I have been in my mid twenties, um, whether I still feel that in my mid fifties and whether it would still do, it did exactly the same thing, <laughs> exactly the same thing. It was no more or less scary um, in, you know, 2020 than it had been in 1990. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, okay. I'm, I'm curious about this because I think three, four, eight owners become a little bit defensive when their car is declared. Understandably you know, so. Doesn't some, right. say it's, some say it's, I'm not even going to say it, but it doesn't have the finest reputation, does it? And, but I do wonder, is it possible to enjoy a 348 on the road when you're just driving it, not absolutely. nailing it, not absolutely. crashing it? And I, and I have said this. I have absolutely said this. For a, cer- a certain sort of punter, um, because, you know, because of their reputation, they're quite affordable. Mm. You'll pay shed loads more for them either the 328 that came before it or the F355 that came after it. Mm. Um, and I actually think it's a really good buy. I think they're pretty reliable. Um, and, you know, why not? If you're not mm. going to go, you know, skidding about on the thing, but you just what you just love the idea of being in a beautiful Ferrari, and it is beautiful. It is, yeah. Um, I'd avoid the Targas because they leak mm. um, and they're quite difficult to fix. But a 348 Coupe, just as a, you know... <clears throat> a six, seven tenths road car, which mm. actually is what I would say the vast majority of people would use them for. Lovely. Go for it. Absolutely. hundred mm. percent. Presumably the motor's pretty good. Motor's lovely. Yeah. I mean, the manual's not great because mm. it, it's, a, it's that tr- transverse gearbox that they had. Um, but actually, certainly the one that I tried three years ago was not as bad as I recall. I mean, it's not terrible. It's not certainly not a reason to not get the car. Mm. Um, and if you want a, you know, a cheap Ferrari that still feels quite quick and sounds lovely and good. I think there's a lot to be said for it. Yeah. Just oh, don't go hooning around at it. <laughs> okay. okay, let me give you one of mine then. And, okay. um, this is, I suppose this comes down to the, the road and the conditions exacerbating an inherent problem in this car. Um, because normally, the first turbocharged BMW M4, particularly the earlier ones, um, I mean, they can be fairly spiky, but when you've got tyres that are perhaps past their best, when you're on that Blakey Ridge Road across the North York Moors, yeah, which yeah. is a really cresting, undulating, yumpy road, yeah. um, with not the best surface, when it is literally freezing, there's no tyre temperature, and when the surface, the road surface, is damp, what you find is that on an upshift, you can just be driving through third upshift to fourth and that interruption or the way the torque comes back in yeah. once fourth is engaged it would break traction and the rear of the car would just snap yeah. even even with the stability control system fully on yeah it would yeah, just because go the stability control will never catch that no it'll no. never catch that oh i just <laughs> honestly trying yeah, to drive I with bet. any kind of enthusiasm across that road in that car yeah it, it was terrifying and yeah, I mean, if the measure of all this is that you're pleased to get out at the end, goodness me, was I happy to get out at the end. Yeah. And that, that car, honestly, something about the, the calibration of the upshift or the torque delivery 
something was not right in those early M4s. And, but also the, the rear end was quite, it felt quite soft or quite um, loosely controlled. So it would try and get away from you, particularly over sort of vertical yeah. inputs in the road. And they were, to me, oh. they were just, they were never anything like as nice to drive as the M2s. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. the M2 is a much more enjoyable car. Okay. Can I give you one? Yeah. Properly scary, this. Dodge Viper. Ah, God, I'm so interested in Dodge Viper. I, Dodge. I, I'm going to try and drive one soon and write a story because I, I had a model Viper as a kid. And so when I was young, they were the best cars ever. Okay. Um, can, I just, can I just make one suggestion? Go if on. it's raining, reschedule. Don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although, actually, actually, you know, in the 30-something years that have passed since the Viper first came out, um, it won't be on, I suspect, that a, well, not a lot, but certainly a sizable component of the problem that I had with it originally with the tyres that it was on. And the, mm. tire, and, the, and the tire tech will have moved on so far. Um, it might not be too bad. But So Dodge Viper actually was a quite pleasant handling car in the dry. Um, never had any particular problem with it. Uh, it was pretty stiffly set up, but, you know, on the dry, that's what you want. In the wet, oh my goodness. I can remember there's a, somewhere... Um, and I've been trying to destroy every copy in the world. There is a video of me doing a bit of in-car talking in a Dodge Viper trying to drive around Goodwood in the wet. And I have this massive moment in the middle of my piece to camera. And and I'm literally just sort of saying, um, you know, and, you know, we're driving around Goodwood, this Dodge Viper around Goodwood, and this car is unbelievably tricky in the wet. And then suddenly it all just goes horribly wrong. And I get something like, as I think I've just unintentionally managed to illustrate. Um, (laughs) And literally, I was, I mean, I thought, I, it, it, and, and when it went, you just didn't know, where, you, it wasn't just that it went, you didn't know where, where it was going. And, you know, and if you caught it ever so slightly wrong, it would go the other way. It had no grip at all. It was just vicious, mm. absolutely vicious in the wet. Um, God, and, yeah, don't fancy that. Yeah, uh, and, but actually very sweet in the dry. I mean, what, I'm not sure I've driven another car whose character changed more, its handling mm. changed more between wet and dry conditions than that Viper. Mm. Um, yeah, it was a real high days and holidays and sunny days car. What is, just, I, I know we're not talking about engines or the Dodge Viper specifically in this episode, but I'm just curious about that engine, that V10. What, yeah. What's it like? What's it really like? Good. Is it, is yeah, it? it's cool. It's cool. It's a good engine. I mean, it's <sighs> a bit, you know, rough and ready. Um, yeah. You know, it started life in a truck. Yeah. Um, but you know, but it's recast in aluminium. It's got no truck bits on it anymore. Um, mm. it's, you know, it's still push rods, but it is, you know, an aluminium eight liter V10 motor. Mm. Very, very understressed. I think the original Vipers had 400 horsepower. Mm. I remember calculating that my, um, that a sort of a late model 2CV, which had 29 horsepower from 600 cc's was in the same set of state of tune as a Dodge Viper. Yeah, <laughs> which had 400 horsepower from eight liters. They both they were both pushing out about 50 horsepower per liter. Yeah, so God, un- lot, incredibly lazy. Mm, mm. Enormous amounts of torque everywhere. They have this thing where, and it was something to do with US emissions, where unless your foot was hard down, when you changed from first to second, it would deliberately give you fourth. Yeah, really? Yeah. So, you, so the gear lever would just come and instead of going straight back, it would just go it across. Snap to fourth. And into God. fourth. Never made a damn of difference. Yeah. Just pull away yeah. and forth. Absolutely no problem at all. My God. That's it, was designed awesome. to do, it was designed to do that. And it, it mm. didn't, didn't trouble the car in any discernible way. Wow. Yeah. 
Well, actually, while we're on the subject of <clears throat> scary American cars, um, one of mine is the Chevrolet Camaro Z28. We have to say Z, don't we? Um, and I'll qualify this because I drove one again later on, and actually, I loved it. I thought it was is this, fun. Is this the car that Harris owned briefly? Well, that, yeah, that's the one that I drove for the second time. Uh, that's okay. the second Z28. Yeah, and I I've, drove. Dri- I've, I've, driven, I've driven his one. Mm. And I thought yeah. it was fantastic. But the yeah. first one, um, this was on Evo Car of the Year 2015, uh, up in Scotland on the North Coast 500. Um, and it was, it was really funny because you'd walk around in, when we were all parked up um, and you'd sort of walk from one group of people to the other and you just constantly heard people going oh that Camaro I don't think we're going to drive that again <laughs> um, and just constant, people constantly muttering about the Camaro um, and I didn't get to drive it until I don't know maybe the last day and by then I was properly intimidated by this thing um, and it's I mean it's quite a scary car anyway it feels big it's left-hand drive so you're a bit compromised anyway in the UK um, stonking great V8 with a load of power and the but it's the front tyres. They're I can't remember what I think it's a three oh five. Yeah, so it, I think it's, it's a three oh five section front tyre. Massive, Ridiculous. massive front tyres. Yeah, and uh, but also aggressive tyres. What are they? A, a Trofeo R, I think. A Pirelli Trofeo tyre, maybe. Bloody hell! Something ridiculously sticky um, and track optimised. And so what it means is this thing just hunts out cambers and ruts, and it and it pulls. It, it was just dragging you across the road. And actually, at times, it was so bad, you would put your foot down and find that without realising it, you were halfway into the other side of the lane, the other lane, <laughs> other side of the road, yeah. just pulling you every which way. Um, it, it just meant that by the time you got out, you were delighted to be handing it back in one piece. However, what we did realise towards the end of the test was that the tyre pressures were way off, mm. way off. And what most we, it hadn't twigged because most of us just assumed that it was the enormous front, front tires and quite tricky Scottish roads and the mix the, that combination was just never going to work. But when you got fiddles with the tire pressures, got those right, um, and I know this because I drove um, Harris's old car on roads that we know well in South Wales. Um, with correct tyre pressures and actually okay it's still quite a lively thing it does still sort of find a camber and a, and a rut and it keeps you on your toes but nothing like it did when the tyre pressures were all wonky yeah and so I mean, actually quite, it's a really good fun thing when it was the way it should be but tyres make such a difference I mean you, you know they can I can remember we did a one of the Autocar Handling Day things at a very very wet Castle Coombe one year not that long ago I was um, there I think and we had an M2 CS? M, uh, M4. M2, M4. Yeah. It was on the wrong tyres. Yeah. It was on cut twos or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. And, it came, and it came last. Um, yeah. It was horrendous. It was undrivable. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, it was undrivable. Whereas everything else was on sort of, you know, sensible stuff like zeros and mm. um, Pilot Sport 4Ss and that sort of thing. Um and, you know, and so often, you know, if you've got a problem with, with, with your car and you're not happy the way that it's handling, so often it can, you know, the tyres can make such a difference. You've got to have mm. the right tyre for, um, for your environment, definitely. But um, actually, on, on the subject, that, that, that was on my list, that M4CS that we had at Castle Coombe. It was a super greasy day, not just wet, but greasy, really slippery underfoot, not yeah. very nice. Um, but the curious thing was that the 911 GT3, also on Cup 2s, worked. 
and yeah. you could lean on the tires and trust them and know when it was going to grip or traction was going to run out. But in that M4, and I think it's the turbocharging again and the torque delivery that I spoke about earlier, so snappy, and it would just no warning, it would just go. Um, Didn't we also yeah. have an AMG GT, which was yeah. evil? Yeah, it was. It was. I might uh, have gone over a little bit of grass in that car. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay um, we've got to have a 911 in here haven't we go on then what are you choosing um, 3.6 litre 964 turbo yeah yeah so um, before the turbo was a four wheel drive all weather yeah um, so it was so it was the last is. of the old school turbos yeah so the yeah. next one the 993 turbo was not only four wheel drive but it had two little turbos rather than one yeah. the size of a medicine ball. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so this was the ultimate old school um, 911 turbo. So 3.6 litres, they made very, very few of them. Um, I don't know, maybe not, not, not ridiculous power, maybe what did it have? 320, 340 horsepower, something like that. Maybe, no, maybe 360, actually. Um, but massive rear tyres... And basically, this thing had obscene turbo lag. Um, it was also, it just understeered and understeered and understeered. And the moment you tried to get it to do anything other than understeer, it would just spin. <laughs> yeah. um, it was, you know, people talk about early 911s. And what I think they're talking about, sort of, you know, short wheelbase, mid-60s cars, they are pussycats compared to this mm. thing. It mm. was the most unbalanced 911 i've ever driven unbalanced both in terms of its chassis and its um and its engine and it was kind of in a i mean i i do quite like cars that are that are a bit challenging and make you think a bit um and there was a little bit of me which made me thought think oh i want to try and get my head around this car and try to get on top of it um but actually, it, 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 to me, it didn't offer the rewards um, that that level of effort, mm. um, you know, that, that, that would have been required. Uh, while at the same time, just the risks that you, to, you would take trying to do it. So, uh, yeah, it was just it was just really really disappointing because it was at the time the fastest nine eleven there'd ever been, and by a distance the worst. The certainly mm. that I'd driven. Was it to do with how crude turbocharging technology was at that stage? Yeah, still, well, it, it, it was that. Um, it was just a big single turbo, so mm. it had nothing, yeah. um, you know, below whatever it was, I don't know, three thousand or something like that. And then it had everything, and it just mm. didn't come in with any kind of progression at all. And if you caught a dollop of boost um, at the wrong time, like when you're trying to come out of a corner hard. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it would just kick the back of the car so far and so fast. Mm. Um, it was almost a question of luck as to whether you'd be able to catch it or not. Bloody hell. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the rest of the time, it just, I mean, I can remember trying to do a maximum speed run in one at Millbrook. And it's probably as scared as I've ever been up there. I think it did, I don't know, 170 something, 100, early 170s average oof. speed round there. Um, and I was on my own, which is stupid, um, because you have to do it with a stopwatch because the timing equipment on the outside of the car creates too much drag. So you can't use that. And so you use the, well, you know this, you use the half mile post around the edge of the bowl, um, and you have to click a stopwatch. And 
I discovered that trying to drive this car one-handed at these sorts of speeds <laughs> while holding a, a stopwatch in the other wasn't wasn't great. So I thought it's all right. So what I'll do is. I went round at you know an easy speed, like 100 miles an hour, and worked out where my hands were going to be on the steering wheel, and then lashed the stopwatch to the dash so I could just extend the little finger, and I thought I was frightfully clever. When I then went back to do it properly and was doing 170, I had about another quarter turn of lock-on <laughs> yeah. just, um, you know, just to manage the understeer. Um, and I can remember thinking to myself, well, you know, I'm really scared now. I've got to get this thing done. Um, and I'm not going to try again because apart from anything else, you know, certainly back then and when a car is on the steering that much, you really, really worry about tyre temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did. I ended up doing it one hand. I, I ripped the stopwatch off the dash at 170 miles an hour and did a one-handed, basically a one-handed, or one-and-a-half-handed lap in this thing. Somehow got away with it and vowed never, ever to do anything quite no. so stupid ever again. Yeah. And you certainly don't endorse that behaviour now. Oh, I do me. not. No. It makes a good no. tale. I was young and stupid. Um, I'm not just old and stupid. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned earlier that so often it comes down to inappropriate tyres for the yeah. conditions. Yeah. Um, and even a fantastic car can, pe- can become horribly frightening in the wrong conditions on the wrong tyres. And I, I specifically remember driving a McLaren 570S, a car that I really love. Wonderful chassis on that car. Wonderful yeah. steering. But we were on um, roads in North Wales in horrendous conditions. And there were pools, puddles all the way along the road. Um, and the car must have been on the Pirelli P0 Corsa tyre. So not anything as aggressive as a Trofeo, but um, pretty close nonetheless. And I'm not sure many other tyres would have coped, but on, on those courses, you would hit a patch of standing water and the thing would just go light and it would just sort of skid across, aquaplane across the surface of the water. Um, and it just meant that the thing was intimidating to drive. And if you, if you tried to press on a little bit or carry a bit of speed the way that you could have done in a 911 turbo on more appropriate tyres in the same conditions, yeah. it, it was just, it felt all the time like it was fractions away from just getting away from you. And it never does because the systems kind of keep things in check. But it does mean that you sit yeah, but in if, the seat if, holding the wheel frightened. Yeah, and also if you're in a situation where you're just relying on the system to save you, that's not a good situation to be in. Because no, it's not. as you and I know, and as we've, you know, we, we, as, as we've discussed on this podcast, you know, there are situations which the systems won't catch. Mm. You know, even to this day, you know, they've been developing traction control and ESP for decades now. You can still find yourself in situations where things happen so fast that the electronics can't keep up with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because all they can do is stop... You know, they, they, you know, they can break the car, they can, you know, they can manage the throttle and that sort of thing. But if the back's already moving, mm. you know, they can't you know, throw out a big hand and somehow bring it no. back again. No. So you know, there's a, there is only so much they can do, and physics is physics. Mm. Um, talking of which... This is a okay. This is a car that has scared me quite a number of times, even though I really like it. Yeah. I don't usually like cars that scare me, but it's so good in so many other ways. Aerial Atom. Ah, yeah. Not the modern Interesting. one. Not the four. Yeah, so the earlier one. Not even a not even a three point five, but mm. you know, earlier. Well, there's a three point five R, which was so. Yeah, so they have this. 
at the beginning of this podcast, I was talking about sort of roll-induced oversteer in the XGR15. Mm. Atoms do the same. Yeah. Earlier atoms do the same. Um, and it's because they've got this Honda engine that's mounted very high up at the back. And they fixed it all with the Atom 4, which is one of the sweetest handling cars I've ever driven. Um, mm. Back-to-back winner at the Autocar um, handling day, which is pretty unheard of. Um, but the earlier cars were just so... Yeah, um, you, you turn into a corner and you'd be on the opposite lock immediately mm. and you think, what was that? Mm. And I can remember once on the Welsh Mountain Road when it was wet and I wasn't even in a supercharged car, I was in a normally aspirated car with like 245 horsepower. I can remember turning into a sort of medium speed curve and this happening, but because it was wet and it was probably quite cold and probably because I wasn't ready for it or paying quite as much attention as I should have been, Suddenly, the car was really pretty sideways, and I can remember looking out the side of the car and seeing, the, frankly, the ravine we were about to disappear down. Um, and it was one of those moments where it's amazing how the brain just kind of slows down, and, you're just, mm. and you just think to yourself, okay, this is actually quite important. You know, we can't muck about with this. Mm. You need to get busy now, and whatever it is you do, you need to do it right. And it was, it was fine and everything else, but I've never forgotten it. It's oh. just one of those sort of gut-wrenching moments where you just yeah. think, this could go horrendously wrong yeah um and you know they changed the chassis completely on that car from the um from the atom three to the atom four and now you know they are absolutely good as gold despite the yeah. fact they got huge amounts more torque than they ever used to have and you know, mm. many, you know frankly much more potential for you know something to go wrong but it just doesn't mm. do it anymore yeah they're lovely now they really are yeah. very very sweet now um, okay, we're running out of time. So unless you've got any others, oh, uh, how many do you want? How many do you want? I've barely got. I've, I've barely got going. Maybe we'll do. Uh, okay, I'm just trying to think of um, McLaren F1. There you go. Oh, go McLaren, F, McLaren F1 in the wet. Yeah, oh, I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, a few people have come to grief in those. Mm. Um, luckily, not me. Um, in fact, I only drove one in the wet once and very briefly, um, which was just for doing the cover shoot at, uh, for the auto car road test. Um, and so, but, you know, I've heard enough from people who have to know that they are, they keep you very busy indeed. And, and things can mm. go really quite badly wrong with those. Morgan Aero 8. Oh, the old, really? The old Morgan Aero 8. Yeah. One of these turned up to one of our handling days. And, okay, there's one other car, which I thought to myself, even more, what on earth is this doing here? Which I'll get to it in a minute. But, yeah, the Aero 8, lovely car for pootling to the pub mm. in, that sort of thing. But... Try to drive it fast, and it was just hopeless. <laughs> not cut out for it, is it? I mean, not not sort of. Actually, no, actually, to be fair, it probably shouldn't be on the list because it wasn't. It didn't scare me. I just got annoyed with it because it mm. was just incompetent. Um, mm. So maybe, maybe not that. And then actually, maybe not even. The, no, actually, the SL. Do you remember the SLK fifty five black, the first of the yeah. black series things? You know, at SLK with the one thing that an SLK has got going for it, i.e., a convertible roof removed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And that was their first ever um, Black Series car. And I think they just felt the need to get it out there. And clearly nobody bothered to tune the suspension because it was mm. all over the place. Mm. I mean, I, I can't remember where we drove. I think it was a Bedford. And nobody wanted to drive it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That they a lot. didn't. It spent most of the day sat in the pit lane. And every time yeah. anybody went out of it, they came, they, they, they were like back in the lap or two later going, I just don't understand this. Is this mm. car really as bad as... I think it is. And the answer was, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Terrible, terrible car. Yeah. Is that God. enough? I think that's enough. Okay. Yeah. Scary cars. 
I wonder though, are we, are we going to get more or fewer scary cars? Probably fewer. I wonder if the days of being petrified in something new are increasingly behind well, the us. Pro- the problem is, is that everything's being taken over. Maybe the problem is, maybe it's the solution, is that everything's being taken over by the systems, aren't they? Mm, mm. Um, and it's more sort of sit back, watch this, I'm smarter than you, and just, you know, see my electronics, you know, sort yeah. this out for you. And, you know, we already have cars, don't we, which will, you know, control the angle of drift for you, yeah. and you can look yeah, like yeah. a hero, and... Um, and it's all just done by the electronics. And but uh, you know, I just find that disconcerting because you know, probably entirely wrongly, I would back myself over a computer to control a car. It's mm. a stupid thing to think, but in my head, mm. I just want to be in charge. And if it all mm. goes wrong, then I know it's my fault. Um, so you know, cars will obviously get safer and they'll get less scary and they'll become less interesting as a result. Mm. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. We'll leave that one there. But just to wrap things up, a listener question from, sorry, Adam, I've only got your first name. Um, would you choose, simple one, would you choose a great chassis or a great engine? You can only have one in any kind of car you like, but you can only have one. Now, we did a, an episode recently, didn't we, on our favourite engines. So we, we love a great engine, but would you have that over a great chassis? No. You've got to have a great chassis. Yeah, I agree. Got to have a great chassis because an engine, even if an engine is just a facilitator, no, no, because, you know, no, absolutely not. You know, engines are about straight lines, aren't they? And what we love Mm. about cars are going around corners. Mm, Uh, And actually, if you've got a great engine and a crap chassis, that's actually almost worse than having a crap engine and a crap chassis because it would just be utterly frustrating. Mm, mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, Great great engines are wonderful, but it's, it's almost a one dimensional experience, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, feeling it no. rev out or re- how it responds or whatever. But, you know, I, I had to think about that for a bit, but the moment I did think about it, it just became mm. absolutely blindingly obvious. Absolutely, you know, have a average or below average engine yeah. in a car with a great chassis because then far you can still have the fun. Yeah, because yeah, you, you can still have fun. Whereas yeah. you've got, you know, you can have a Colombo V12 and something which handles like a, you know, a bathtub or you know, and you know, yeah, you know, it's just going to annoy you. There you go. Crystal clear. Uh, Thanks, Adam, for your question. Keep them coming, um, and we'll do it again next week. Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.